Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast at 7am. Today is Tuesday, the 29th of August. My name is Fung, and in the studio with me is Carnegie. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. How was your weekend? It was really nice. I went to a... Fancy wedding, which was beautiful. Um, Lovely. Yeah. How was yours? Very relaxing. I didn't go to a fancy wedding, um, but on Sunday afternoon I did go to the movies by myself, which was really lovely. What did you watch? I watched a movie called Past Lives. Ooh. Was I think it, good? it was at MIF. Um, it was really good. Slow moving, but really beautiful. Um, so I never know how much to say. I don't want to give too much away, but no. um, a connection a connection with your past yeah. and relationships with people um, and with yourself and, you know, your language and culture, but it was really lovely. And uh, I always forget how nice it is to go to the movies by yourself. Yeah. Um, I feel like doing a lot of things by yourself is quite peaceful isn't it it really is i'm a big fan yeah Mm. um there you go a a challenge to people listening (laughs) absolutely (laughs) doing an activity by yourself which is really nice um okay well let's have a chat about what's coming up on our show today so this morning at 7.30, we'll be speaking with Chloe from NTEU at Melbourne Uni, uh, who is a professional staff member of the Faculty of Arts, and she'll be joining us to talk about the seven-day strike happening there that started yesterday. Then at 7.45, we'll be joined by Professor Sandy O'Sullivan, who will be on the show to talk to us about their recent project, Saving Lives, Mapping the Influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ plus Creative Artists. At 8 o'clock, we'll be chatting with Marisol Salinas, who you may know from 3CR's Mujeres Latinos Americanas show. And she'll be on the show this morning to speak about the Mapuchean political prisoners and the solidarity action that's taking place today outside the Chilean consulate. And finally, at 8.15 this morning, we'll be speaking with Freya Leonard from Friends of the Earth. Uh, She is the coordinator of the No More Gas Collective and will be speaking to us about their campaign to get off gas. So that's what's coming up on the show. We'll be back with the news headlines right after this. Wage theft is the symptom of the problem. 
What we're seeing is obscenely well-remunerated vice-chancellors. It's appalling how badly universities have been treating their casual workers. They want to pretend that they can continue on with business as usual. Well, comrades, we're here to say no. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Hey, this is Greta Ray, and you are listening to 3CR 855am Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. These are the news headlines for this morning, Tuesday the 29th of August. The Zero Waste Festival is coming up on Saturday the 2nd of November. This festival aims to highlight the finest zero waste practices, products and concepts that are reshaping our approach to sustainable living. You can be a part of it by bringing your unwanted quality clothes for the clothes swap, broken items to the repair cafe, come along to stitch at the mending circle and craft with recycled materials. The festival will be on from 10am to 7pm at Fed Square on the 2nd of September and you can find out more at zerowastevictoria.org. The New International Bookstore is excited to be screening Formidable Women, an archival documentary about the cultural history of Australia as seen through the eyes of Wendy Lowenstein and Shirley Andrews. You can attend the screening and the following discussion with the director and producer on Wednesday the 27th of September at 6pm. Tickets will be available on the 3rd of September. You can find out more at nibs.org.au. Rising Tide, a diverse movement demanding Australia honours our commitment to the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, is having a public meeting at 6pm tomorrow, Wednesday the 30th of August, to discuss the disruption and the climate destruction at Victoria Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. This forum will discuss why we need a mass, diverse and disruptive climate movement and how we can build one that has the power and strategy to match the urgency of the climate crisis and achieve transformative change. This event is open to everyone and you can RSVP at bit.ly slash risingtidetour-nam. You can find out more about the organisation at risingtide.org.au. The Queensland government has introduced legislation to allow it to imprison children in police watchhouses for adults, even if this is not compatible with human rights. The police minister, Mark Ryan, introduced the amendment as a part of a a big group of changes to an unrelated bill in state parliament on Wednesday afternoon last week. It will require a suspension of the state's Human Rights Act. This is the second time that the Queensland state government has suspended the Human Rights Act after it passed a bill to make breaching bail a criminal offence for children. There is no limit to how long a child can be held in an adult detention centre in the bill, but the chief executive is instructed to take into account a range of factors, including the child's mental health, their needs, age and gender. It also allows the state government to establish a detention centre at a police watchhouse. A Victorian police officer found to have subjected his fiance to coercive control and misogynistic abuse while on duty was allowed to work on full pay for almost five years while the case was investigated. 
The initial decision to dismiss the officer called penalties handed to other officers found to have committed family violence manifestly disproportionate and light. Police Registration and Services Board, which reviews police disciplinary findings, also criticised the force for its handling of internal complaints in general. The police officer was charged with three disciplinary breaches relating to the treatment of his fiancée, taking the f- a photograph of a man in hospital under police custody and disclosing police information about a search for a vulnerable person. Those are our new head- news headlines for this morning. We're going to play you a track now. Um, this song is called Heat by Archana. Archana is a queer Indian-American musician who channels a bit of early 2000s pop and R&B with Karnatak vocals.
Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. The Seamen's Union and the Waterside Workers Federation took part in the longest boycott in Australian history after Finochet took over in Chile. A democratically elected government was overthrown with the help of the United States. There are many Chileans in Australia who suffered torture, imprisonment and whose family members have been disappeared. We can't move forward as a society without healing these past crimes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, this event will be held in English and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. Here on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. One of the things that we've been focusing on on the show this year in particular um, is, you know, women going through the medical system in different ways. Um, I think particularly one of our focuses has been um, on the birthing system um, with all the news around midwives and their experiences, midwives going on strike across the country, um, you know, women speaking up about their experiences, the trauma that they experienced during birth, um, things like the IVF process, how difficult navigating the medical system can be. And uh, I just wanted to talk about a podcast I recently listened to that really delves into a lot of these issues, particularly the issue of women's pain being dismissed. Um, it's called The Retrievals. It's on Apple Podcasts. And it's a uh, it's a five-part series about women who go to Yale, um, you know, which is obviously a trusted organization. Um, and they have a fertility clinic. Um, so women who go to that fertility clinic to get um, part of their IVF process done there, um, and it's conversations with these women um, over five episodes and what what happens. And it's just a really, really great and quite a disturbing look into what women go through, how their pain is just completely and utterly dismissed, um, how the words that are actually coming from the women themselves 
are fully ignored, um, which then, you know, creates this um, kind of atmosphere and environment where everything else that intersects with the problems in the medical system also gets dismissed. Um, It's really great at uh, acknowledging some of the intersections, such as race um, and family violence and, you know, so many other things uh, that women have to contend with in society every day. I think it's, you know, also unique in that way where it's, the focus is on the egg retrieval process, which is part of the IVF process. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely takes into account all these other things women are simultaneously navigating, which also impacts their understanding and therefore dismissal of pain. Um, yeah, I just think that it's people should listen to it. it this, this podcast particularly, it's American. So there are definitely differences between their system and ours here in Australia. But I think overall, the experiences are very, very similar, um, unfortunately, in that I think most women who listen to this show um, and that have had anything to do with the medical system know what it's like to have the experiences dismissed. Um, You know, everything from period pain to endometriosis to um, issues with pregnancy to just niche issues. You know, they talk about in the podcast how many women go to the hospital having a heart attack and are sent home with anxiety medication. Um, And unfortunately, these things are not, you know, just relevant to America. Um, They're across the board. And I think it's a really good uh, look into it. So really recommend. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, really recommend our listeners. Yeah, it's it's definitely, like you said, these are conversations that we've had with various people, uh, experts in the field and also people with lived experience on this show before. Um, and something that I always find really outrageous is a lot of people just feel like they can't or they're sort of made to, yeah, made to feel like they can't advocate for themselves in these spaces because you feel like, you know, the default is to listen to the quote-unquote medical expert. And, yeah, it's it's. I imagine it would be very hard for people to have to or are forced to ignore what their body is telling them. Yeah, and what's really kind of jarring um, in this podcast and from, you know, all the experiences that are talked about is how every single person bar maybe one uh creates a narrative to explain away the pain for themselves which i find you know so if you think about it it's like it's all these women over years and years at the same clinic going through this one of the issues obviously is that their experiences are siloed and the women are not connected with one another and talking with one another um other than you know this podcast but each and every one I just found it so interesting and so sad that each and every person created like a whole other narrative for themselves to explain away what happened you know everything from oh that particular drug doesn't work on me or even though they've had surgeries in the past where it has worked on them so like dismissing their own experiences yeah it's just 
And like, yeah, another thing it really goes into is how corporate, like big organizations like Yale um, just can't be held accountable. They kind of just sit behind, they're like faceless and they sit behind, you know, all these legal terms and um, the absolute lack of empathy is so devastating. Yeah, that's the really challenging thing and frustrating thing with these institutions. How do you even... Where do we even go to begin the process of speaking to someone? I would have no idea. Like, who do you contact as a first... Yeah, who's the first point of contact there? Well, exactly, and, you know, there is none. And um, as we've seen in the recent inquiry into birth trauma in New South Wales, um, there's, you know, women who've been through trauma are not necessarily wanting to relive that and talk about it and submit to an inquiry, you know, which you can't really blame them after what they go through. And it's it's similar in this podcast. You really can see um, so many women that come forward, It what it takes for them to do so and, like, how many women wouldn't, you know? And, like, that's half the reason why, why we wouldn't know or we wouldn't be able to take any steps. But it's all. it feels like it's all by design to keep women quiet and keep them silent and we're seeing it happen in real time with this inquiry with you know everything happening um all the reports coming out about um women in in the birthing system and midwives who've, who are sick of being a part of witnessing these women's pain and trauma so um yeah i think given the current kind of climate in australia where this is finally getting a bit of a light shone on it and we've been talking about it on the show it's a really important podcast to listen to yeah um like you said i think even though it's it's set in america i imagine there are so many similarities between between what's happening there and here because as well as yeah these big institutions like you said there are these intersections as well of people's experience whether that's institutions that are racist homophobic queerphobic fatphobic like there's so many ways that institutions ignore and discriminate against people um with multiple lived experiences so which only just makes yeah makes it so much harder in some ways absolutely and i think um you know touching on what one of our guests from last week vanessa shribman who's a birth educator she talked about how in her experience uh one of the reasons women have birth trauma is because these institutions make women feel like the best outcome is to have a baby that's alive and nothing else matters. And that's really explored in this as well because, you know, some of the women do end up with babies and they have to reckon with the process of creating the baby being traumatic. And, you know, that's not something that's often talked about. Um, which also I found really, really uh, devastating, but also interesting in how women are able to do that and how they try to do that. Um, again, it's like contending with a hundred facets of society that you know you shouldn't necessarily have to in such a vulnerable time. Um, but yeah, it reminded me of some of the interviews we've done this year, and a, and a lot of those people have touched on this exact issue as well. Yeah, it's funny when we think about all the advances that have that we've had in society. Like, surely, 
one of those things could could be something that helps people um, give birth and not go through such a traumatic time. Right. I mean, it just tells you how much it's not a priority in research. You know, there's no funding being put towards it. Women are literally screaming in pain and people are like, oh, well, yeah, at least you have a baby. Yeah. And I guess similar to, I mean, you, you mentioned this before, but a lot of other things, any anything really to, to do with reproductive rights and access to reproductive services, really something that still struggles a lot. Yeah. And a lot of people don't have access, don't have means in order to feel safe and feel comfortable. Yeah, and like we talked about last week, it's only this year that period products were tested with actual blood and not saline solutions. So (laughs) I feel like we have such a long way to go, um, you know, and I'm really glad that this year uh, there's been so much conversation around it. It's depressing and it's, um, you know, it's 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 not pleasant. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of my peers are at an age where they are going through these processes. So I'm also kind of watching it in real time. You know, my partner and I just went through it. So it's it's very personal, I feel, also for women and birthing people. And, you know, it's um, I think it's a process that needs to be happening. It's obviously happening far too late, but at least it's happening. And I feel like the conversations are happening across the board, like they're happening from different points of view, um, you know, from from medical staff, from people going through it. Um, so hopefully this will result in something moving forward in proper changes, proper research, funding. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll keep talking about it. We'll keep talking about it. Of course we will. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think it's always really good to hear what yeah people are listening to, what people are watching and how that relates to what's happening in our world as well. Um, and, yeah, it, that seems really relevant and so meaningful and important for, for a lot of people. So thank you for that. We're going to play a song um, right after this message. We have a right to be in public space, undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We're going to a song now. This is by Jewel Owusu, who is a Nambe singer-songwriter, and this is her latest single, B-Day.
the song B-Day by Jewel Owusu. Chloe is a professional staff member of the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne. She is also a delegate and health and safety rep for arts and the vice president professional for University of Melbourne's NTEU branch. Chloe joins us on the show this morning to speak about the seven-day strike happening at the University of Melbourne that kicked off yesterday. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Chloe. Thanks for having me. So, as we know, you know, thousands of NTU members across Victoria are taking industrial action this week, including a groundbreaking um, week-long strike at the University of Melbourne, which started yesterday. Can you tell us a bit about what led to this action? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, we have been in bargaining for over a year now, um, and the university really hasn't come to the table uh, with very much for us. Um, so, we're still yet to hear um, on six of our key claims. Um, and although we have won a few um, really good things at the table, um, they're still the university still hasn't come to us with an offer on um, some of our key claims, um, like uh, you know workloads and uh, you know flexible work arrangements, um, and one of the big ones being um, secure work. So this is really just an escalation of our campaign um, in response to the university dragging their feet and um, not negotiating with us at the table. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a year is a long time and I can imagine staff are quite frustrated with management's failure to, you know, agree 
to have any meaningful improvements for staff. Um, how were staff feeling yesterday on the first day of the strike? Yeah, it was uh, such a good vibe. So um, we had, I think, about a thousand people out at the rally. Um, and um, yeah, it was just such a good vibe. The music was going, the speeches were amazing. Um, and we had people march from their areas. So um, I think a lot of people walked off the job at 12 o'clock, which is when the strike started. Some of us, like in Faculty of Arts, who were already on strike, met up um, at a particular point around the university and we all sort of marched and, and converged on Raymond Priestley Building, which is where um, the Chancellor's office is. Um, and it was just, it, it felt really powerful. Um, and yeah, people were excited. Um, and definitely like the, the frustration is what led people to like come out on the strike, but also the solidarity yesterday was um just really joyous and um, afterwards we had a picnic on South Lawn and the music was going and people were, you know, having chats with their colleagues in the sun and it was just um, a really wonderful vibe. So I think there's frustration and anger but channeled into that beautiful solidarity. Yeah, I love that. Um, you really painted a picture there, especially, you know, yesterday was such mm -hmm. a nice day. Um, I know you touched on it a little bit already, but can you tell our listeners um, what some of the NTEU's main demands have been from university management and what their response has been like um, during negotiations? Yeah, so uh, one of our biggest um, claims on the table is we're looking for 80% um, secure work targets. Um, the university um, is agreeing with the part that they want to um, sort of to speak, decasualize, um, but they're refusing to negotiate on a target. Um, so that's been a really big sticking point um, for us. And as people will know, you know, with the wage theft campaign um, that's been happening um, over the past, you know, started a few years ago, um, that's been a really big one for us, um, being able to ensure that our staff actually have secure jobs um, to hopefully prevent something like that happening again. Um, another of the really big ones, um, and this is sort of my, um, I think my particular uh, key claim is on workloads. Um, and at the moment, there's no, nothing in our EBA that puts the onus onto university management to actually, um, I guess, like regulate workloads. And um, when we put that to them at the bargaining table, they actually said to us, Oh, we're not aware of any workload problems at the university, um, to which I think every university worker just <laughs> laughed and, and, you know, threw their hands down and thought, oh, my God, what? Like, you know, do you even know the place that you're working at? Um, and on top of that, uh, I think our other key claims we've got are improved parental rights, um, uh, improved work-from-home rights for professional staff. So although we pivoted to work from home during COVID. Um, now that we've had to return to campus, um, whether or not you're allowed to take work from home days is completely dependent on your line manager. So we're trying to get that put into the EBA. Um, we're also trying to put a restriction on restructures um, so that uh, staff don't have to go through more than one over the life of the agreement. Um, and we thought that was pretty reasonable. Um, the university disagrees and um, is refusing to put any kind of restrictions on restructures, which is a little bit of a worry. Um, and, of course, the other big one is a pay rise, um, which is, yeah, very needed at the moment with um, cost of living crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we are seeing this across the board at unis. Um one of the reasons I feel, you know, I'm an NTU member myself, um, mm. that is that, you know, universities are becoming more and more corporate in the way that they function. Um, 
which is, you know, I think one of the reasons the restructures keep happening because um, they keep putting more money at the top um, and they're getting more and more kind of distanced from the workers. And so, you know, your experience in the uh, bargaining is very telling where uh, they're not even acknowledging the workloads for staff. Um, yeah. Have you seen an impact on, you know, students learning? Because I feel like that's the main point of a university and, and universities are not quite focusing on that as they should. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, solidarity to you as a fellow NTU member as well. Um, yeah, so the student learning has been a big focus of this. And for a lot of our members, um, that's been a really important part where they've said, you know, we're willing to take strike action. But, you know, like, what about the students? What are we going to do and so that has been a really big part of our campaign and, and I'd just like to give a shout out to the students who've been incredible um, and engaging with us and um, we've got some amazing student solidarity groups too who've been doing incredible work so just a brief shout out to them um, but that is really a key part of this is I think um, a big slogan that's being used at the moment in our campaign is um, staff working conditions, the student learning conditions um, and a lot of teaching staff have made the point that if we don't take this strike action now we will allow the continued deterioration of, of learning and teaching conditions in the classroom. And so some of the ways that, um, you know, staff have been talking about this deterioration is, you know, the wage theft campaign where, um, you know, casual staff were actually only paid for 10 minutes per essay. And so they actually, you know, had to choose between doing a good job of marking or, um, you know, but not getting paid for their work or only doing what they were getting paid for. Um, and so that's a pretty egregious example. Um, other examples are, you know, like the growth of, um, you know, class sizes and things like that. Um, you know, we just, in many cases, we don't have the staff to teach more classes and so staff are taking bigger and bigger class sizes um, which means that students aren't getting the same education um, also there's been kind of a hollowing out of a lot of student services um, and the student services we have do a great job but structurally um, you know they're set up so that it's individual students have to find where to go and it's very difficult to get answers sometimes that there are long delays um, and so things like that uh, really impact the student experience um, and I think that's really backed up where I think um, University of Melbourne's student experience um, results in the surveys have just absolutely plummeted. I think we were uh, second to last out of Australian universities for uh, student experience. So, um, yeah, I think our staff are very, very clear that a big reason we're doing this is, is for the students um, because... You know, it, the teaching is one of the things they're really passionate about um, and they just can't bear to see these... Um, you know, deteriorating conditions um, in our classrooms and especially when we've got a lot of students, um, you know, particularly international students coming here for a good education, um, you know, paying top dollar um, but not receiving a quality of education that matches that. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's um, been a, a keystone of our, of our campaign. Yeah, I, um, you know, not to mention Melbourne Uni is one of the most um, affluent universities in the whole country. Um, so I feel like definitely, and as you mentioned, for international students in particular that are paying even more, um, yeah, um, I'm really glad that you do have student support and students are getting behind the strikes and um, wanting to improve their own learning conditions by supporting staff as well. Um, what have you got planned for the rest of the week and what are you hoping management's response will be? 
Yeah, so um, we've got uh, quite a few areas out on strike for the full week. So yesterday was um, all members across the university. Um, and then from today to Friday, I think we've got um, Faculty of Art, uh, Faculty of Law, um, the libraries, 757 Swanson Street, which is where a lot of our um, sort of professional um, student support staff work. Um, and we've also got VCA, uh, School of Art and Faculty of Fine Arts and Music Stagecraft. So we're all out for the whole week. Um, so between all those areas, we've got kind of like a whole, almost like carnival of activities. Um, there'll be some rallies. We've got lunch every day, um, which, um, yep, will be like served up to all our members who are on the pickets. Um, so that's a really good chance for everyone to get together and um, have a chat. We've got workplace meetings. I've also got a whole bunch of teaching scheduled. Um, so we've got academics who are basically hosting sort of like radical teachings about, you know, um, unions and um, the strike and that sort of thing that is open to any other staff or um, students to attend. Um, yeah, so there's like a whole bunch of stuff going on, which is um, really exciting. I think it's actually going to be like a really fun week on campus. Um, and we have actually already received um, a pay offer from the university um, yesterday, which I think came at about three o'clock, which was... Um, you know, after we'd basically shown our strength at the Chancellery Building. So um, I think, you know, it is working, but it was not enough for, for what we were expecting. And so, um, and also we were expecting a an offer on secure work that didn't come through. So I think we're definitely going to continue our strike, continue to put the pressure on. Um, and we hope that the university will then come to the table with, um, you know, the offers that they have promised us um, and that they are fair offers and actually reflect, um, you know, what staff need and what we are asking for um, and also the time that has been spent bargaining. Um, the university has been quite disorganised. Um, there have been several times where they've asked for, you know, a two-week extension to provide something and then they haven't gone back to us for 11 weeks, for example. So, um, yeah, so we hope that this strike will... Uh, you know, get them to kind of get all their ducks in a row and give us the uh, real offers that we can actually take back to members. Absolutely. And if there's other NTU members listening from other unis, how can they help support your cause? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think um, just, you know, sending through any messages of solidarity to people that, um, you know, are at Melbourne. Um, I know also I think RMIT is going out on a strike on Thursday, which is awesome. Um, and we did have quite a few, um, like, comrades from other <laughs> universities pop into our strike yesterday, which was so good to see. Um, and I think I would just say, like, organise in your own branches as well. Um, one of the great things about Melbourne um, and the reason we got a week strike up is because we have so many amazing delegates who just did the hard work of having conversations with people and organising. Um, and it's been, frankly, just really inspiring to see. So um, I think, you know, to support us, yeah, definitely, you know, your messages of solidarity, if you have a chance to pop down during the week, that would be amazing. Um, but also just talk to your colleagues and, you know, organise your own workplace. Um, I think when we do that, we see great things. Um, and so that would be my advice. Absolutely. Chloe, that's all we have time for this morning, but best of luck with the rest of the week. Um, you know, definitely solidarity from other parts of the NTEU and we hope that management um, comes back with a fair offer for staff at Melbourne Uni. Thank you so much and thanks for having me.
So that was a staff member, Chloe, from the University of Melbourne, um, who is also the NTU Vice President for Professional Staff, talking to us about the strike action happening there this week. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. And I was only watching silence grow Close my eyes and knew ya Thought I had it And I was only hoping to be weightless See how far I could take this But it seems so slow Waited so divided I was undecided playing in the background there is Ephemera by Valis Alps, a Sydney-based duo. Um, this song, that song was from their new album, Cleave. Joining us now is Professor Sandy O'Sullivan, a Wiradjuri transgender non-binary person and ARC Future Fellow in the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. They're on the show this morning to talk about their project, Saving Lives, Mapping the Influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ plus creative artists, as well as their upcoming talk. Welcome to 3CR, Sandy. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, you know, your project sounds very cool. Um, looks at the mapping, the unique contribution, influence and impact of Indigenous LGBTIQ plus creative artists. Can you just talk to us a little bit about the project and how it came about? Yeah, so I started uh, doing this work about four or five years ago. And then three years ago, I had the opportunity to apply for uh, a major fellowship that... Uh, is available to people who are either mid-career or a little later in their career. Um, and I've been an academic for over 30 years. So um, I'd always planned to do some kind of a project that was about reflecting just the wealth of, um, of material that's developed by queer Indigenous artists and uh, really understanding what that contribution is and understanding how much seeing artists and all sorts of artists from actors to uh, um, visual artists to writers but people who are making creative work that tells us how we exist in the world so anyway i had this opportunity to apply for for funding um uh, and it's allowed me to focus on this for four years so i've been doing it for about uh, two and a half years so far and uh, there's a whole lot of different projects that come out of it uh, so it's a program that has a lot of activities. Obviously, central to it is talking to and talking about 
um, queer Indigenous artists. And I've been, I'm a queer Indigenous artist myself. I come out of a background of doing arts practice. I've been an Associate Professor of Music before I was in my current role as Professor of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie. But um, but I, you know, have always been really just interested in the idea that um, that others need to know about this, and I'm kind of in an in, a, in this position at the moment to to be able to to show a little bit more of that. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the intersections of queer, um, you know, research and critical race theory are incredibly interesting. Can you talk to us about why it's so important to explore this, especially from an Indigenous lens? Oh, look, it's incredibly important to understand this. I, I work in uh, a department of, of Indigenous Studies and, uh, um, and a centre for Global Indigenous Futures, and we centre queer Indigenous people in that space for a really important reason. Uh, what we represent is complexity uh, and diversity and all of the potential that sometimes when other people write about Indigenous people or when other people imagine Indigenous people, they don't think about our complexities and they don't think about how we represent uh, a broad range of um, of experiences. But of course we do. You know? mm. <laughs> it just makes sense that we do. And so the, the critical race and kind of critical queer studies lens does intersect in those ways. But I, I think... I think it's also about what's happening in the world, you know. So we've got a, a survey that's out at the moment. We've had about 500 responses, which is wonderful. Um, but it's a survey that asks people about queer representation on TV. And it's specifically looking at complex queer representation. So those complexities around race, those complexities around uh, ability or disability, those com those complexities around um, the way that people... in engage with one another but also the different sorts of representations of queerness uh, on TV and, and it matters because you know you grow up in a family uh, that uh, doesn't really know or understand LGBTIQA plus um, um, representations then this is the opportunity that a lot of people have to actually be able to see it for the first time on TV, um, to see themselves represented. Uh, so, you know, so we're doing these kinds of projects as a part of it as well. And out of that, uh, we're doing an audit of uh, a very, very, what's becoming a very long list of, uh, of shows that people have told us have made them feel seen, have made them understand more about who they are as a queer person and have shown them that, kind of racial complexity and and ethnic complexity around uh, queerness as well. So, or not, or not, because there is a tendency to see these things as separate and that tendency exists in TV as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, this is something I personally feel really passionately about as a queer person of colour. You know, I yeah. remember clearly the first time I ever saw any representation of me on TV. So um, I think it's incredibly important. Um, what are some of your favourite complex uh, queer black characters on TV? Uh, well, I uh, one of the, the most amazing queer Indigenous characters, in this case, is, I'm making the distinction because they're Indigenous to another continent that wouldn't call themselves black, but, um, but that would be um, Reservation Dogs. You know, I think Willie Jack on Reservation Dogs is remarkable as this as this queer character. I think here on this continent, queer black characters, I mean 
all my friends are racist is an amazing, <laughs> has, has like a wealth of, of queer indigeneity in it. Uh, and it's an incredible series. I think it's only 24 minutes in total. Like, there's uh, seven, six episodes, and, uh, and they're very short episodes, but it's brilliant, you know. And so why are they brilliant? Why are they kind of, why is, uh, are sites like Heartbreak High that has queer Indigenous representation in it? Why is, um, is something like, um, of course, the wonderful Stephen Oliver and black comedy? Why does this matter? Because it's belligerently saying we're here, we've always been here, um, and we'll always be here. <laughs> so, and I think that's what it says to all complexities of, um, of queerness, is to just say that. But we're used to saying it as, as black people on this continent, um, but we have to start saying it uh, uh, more broadly. We need to start to assert that this isn't about a monolith or one way of being in the world. It's about the complexity of who we are. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what impact are you hoping this project will have, particularly on uh, queer Indigenous youth here? Oh, look, I hope that um, that some of the research that we're doing and, and the findings, and the findings are people telling us exactly what you just said before. You know, this is people saying, I saw somebody who was like me for the first time, or I've never seen someone who's like me. Um, we have to present this back to people. I hope that it gives an opportunity for um, for producers and people who are making to see that there's an audience and see what the audience really thinks, because sometimes television representation can be pretty limiting. So it's just thinking about the the um, the TV project, but for the others, it's it's not just about appreciation or research that kind of sits on a shelf. This is about understanding people's voices and what they want and what they want for their futures, you know. And so what I hope it does is um, is expresses some of that. Uh, I, and, uh, you know, I suspect that part of what we have to do, you know, as, uh, as not just researchers who are working in this field, but as Indigenous people, I'm a you know, senior Aboriginal person, and I have a responsibility to say to, to younger people, you, you have a, a right to your complexities, and we have to support you in that. And so a lot of this lays the groundwork for that, and I do this central work as a part of this project, that's about the colonial project of gender. And it's about specifically talking about gender, but it also talks about sexuality. And it talks about how um, gender and sexuality have been these containers that Indigenous people have been forced into. Um, and, you know, that it... There's never been an agreement on that. So to that end, I'm, I'm doing a talk um, uh, this week uh, on Thursday uh, afternoon at 5.30 at, uh, at um, uh, Victoria University campus um, in Footscray. Uh, and it's, I'm talking there about really this idea that we can challenge these containers, all of us can challenge these containers. And it just makes sense that Indigenous people are going to centre, be, be at the centre of that. We're at the centre, or should be at the centre of a lot of things um, in this in this continent. And 
and so this work is really about unpacking some of that. And, and there'll be lots and lots of slides. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot to show. I do a whole lot of work on museums and I'm kind of um, trawling some of that work for it as well. So, yeah. No, um, we're very excited for your talk coming up on Thursday. Um, it's on the colonial project of gender, as you just mentioned, which uh, ties into what you were talking about before, which is, you know, the erasure of the complexities in Indigenous and, and other cultures um, through colonisation. Um, and that links back again to the representation on TV, which has for so long been controlled by white people and, um, you know, people with colonial kind of binary mindsets in a way. Um, so really important talk. It's a free public talk. Um, anyone can attend. Can you tell people um, where they can RSVP and how they can find out more? Well, in fact, um, uh, I, I'm going to do that shameless plug of just saying, follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, Sandy O'Sullivan. And the reason for that is that you can then do the survey as well. <laughs> so, um, but it's got the information about the um, about registering for the talk up there. Um, and it's also up on the, the VU website. So, yeah. Wonderful. We will also link to all of that in our show notes later today. Um, including Sandy's uh, Instagram and Twitter. Um, that's unfortunately all we have time for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us and, and you know, having this really important talk. Uh, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Sandy. That was Professor Sandy O'Sullivan talking to us about their uh, a project on mapping the influence of Indigenous LGBTIQA plus creative artists and upcoming talk this Thursday. We're going to jump to a song now. This is by uh, Wagai and Wemba Wemba singer-songwriter Alice Skye and this is her 2018 track, Friends With Feelings.
Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but co-power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a co-power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and co-power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. Hi, this is Anna Piper Scott, and you're listening to 3CR. You're listening to 3CR. We're going to play another song for you now. This is one of my personal favourites. It's by Lucy Dacus, and it's her song, Night Shift. The first time I tasted somebody else's spit I had a coughing fit I mistakenly called them by your name I was let down, it wasn't the same I'm doing fine Trying to do track mind regaining myself worth in record time but I can't help but think of your other in the bed that was mine am I masochist resisting urges to punch you in the teeth call you a bitch and leave why did I come here to sit and watch you stare at your feet? What was the plan? Absolve your guilt and shake hands. I feel no need to forgive, but I might as well. But let me kiss your lips so I know how it felt. Pay for my coffee and Four hours in the dark Feeling all hell Don't hold your breath Forget you ever saw me at my best You don't deserve what you don't 
the song Night Shift by Lucy Dacus. Unfortunately, we've been unable to get Marisol Salinas on the um, on air this morning, but I did still want to talk about the solidarity action and protest that's coming up today at midday. So um, at midday today, uh, the Latin American Solidarity Network, um, along with other um Indigenous peoples and other solidar- and other people who want to um, take solidarity action are meeting outside the Chilean consulate on St Kilda Road. Um, it's 13-390 St Kilda Road in Nam, Melbourne, um, to protest the treatment of Mapuchean political prisoners in Chile. 
So the Latin American Solidarity Network here in Nam um, have put out a statement saying that they strongly condemn the violence and repression against Mapuchen political prisoners in Chile, and um, they wanted to express their discomfort um, with the actions of the Chilean government and prison guards regarding the health of the um, political, uh, political prisoners, as well as the repression and suffering of their relatives and um, Indigenous territories under the Boric government. Um, so if that's something that uh, if you would like to support this cause and you have uh, an opportunity, then um, please um, head down to the Chilean consulate. That's um, 13 forward slash um, 390 St Kilda Road. That's happening today uh, at midday. So the 29th of August at midday. Um, And, you know, people who would like to come along and support have been told to um, bring flags and loud musical instruments and banners um, in order to support these um, political prisoners who are currently on a hunger strike of 104 days. Um, You know, the Chilean government has not spoken about them and has not responded to their requests. So this protest is is an action of solidarity um, with the the Mapuchen uh, political prisoners. We'll be back with our final interview um, right after this. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are now joined by Freya Leonard, who is coordinator of the No More Gas Collective at Friends of the Earth. Freya is on the show this morning to tell us more about their campaign to get off gas. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Freya. Hey, thank you so much for having me this morning. Uh, Freya, could you please start by um, talking a bit more about the work that you do at the No More Gas Collective? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, my job is to position gas as the fossil fuel that it is and to describe some of the alternatives that we have, you know, um, uh, embracing renewable energy, uh, maximising thermal efficiency. But, you know, it's really critical at this time of climate crisis that we get off gas as quickly as possible. And so to that end, I have a number of projects that I'm rolling out, including uh, we've created a pledge site encouraging people to take a pledge to get off gas, um, the website there is getoffgas.org.au. Um, last year, we issued a report that responds to the Victorian Gas Substitution Roadmap. So we drafted the Community Gas Retirement Roadmap, which puts forward a number of different measures that the state government can consider to um, wean Victoria off polluting gas. Yeah, and if we could just take a, a couple of steps back, I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know why gas is so harmful, but I was wondering if you could explain in a bit more detail why um, the you know gas is so dangerous to our environment. Look, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to summarise that quickly because there are so many ways that gas is damaging right from the moment we start looking for it. Um, in Victoria, we don't have an onshore gas industry as such because we have... The only the world's only ban 
constitutional ban on fracking in Victoria. Um, so it is offshore gas, but just to go looking for it uh, involves seismic blasting. It's 250 decibels of noise every 10 seconds over millions of hectares of ocean. And, I mean, 250 decibels, to put that into perspective, that's like the Hiroshima bomb or louder than the Hiroshima bomb every 10 seconds. So even just looking for it before we even start to produce it, it's enormously polluting and damaging. Um, But, you know, once we actually start to extract it, it's um, around 80 times more polluting to the climate than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. Um, When we burn gas in our homes, it's releasing this um, chemical cocktail of airborne pollutants, including carbon monoxide, formaldehyde, uh, fine particulate matter, and all of that leads to a 12% increased asthma risk. Um, And and we just know from the processing, the gas processing sites that we have around Victoria, that uh, once we actually start processing gas, in the areas where we do that, uh, the toxic legacy lasts for decades. I mean, you have only to look at the old AGL site in Moorabbin. It's just a wasteland. There's nothing you can do with that land now. It's just forever polluted. So, uh, you know, so many reasons to stop using gas, um, not many reasons to keep using gas. So, so yeah, we're really sort of pushing the government and encouraging the state and federal governments to... Um, move Australia as rapidly as possible off gas. And in Victoria, it's particularly critical because we use more gas here than anywhere else in Australia. Yeah, the the list of harms and dangers that you've just listed there really do have an impact of every sort of facet of our lives, um, health, um, noise pollution, all types of pollution, um, mm. you know, damage to the physical environment. Um, it really does sound like gas really has no place here. Um, you know, we we learned last month that it was announced that gas connections will be banned in new homes and government buildings built in Victoria from next year, which is positive. Um, can you talk a bit more about this latest development and how that will roll out? So that was one of the key recommendations in our Community Gas Retirement Roadmap was to see a ban on new gas connections. Uh, we were hoping that that would be extended to commercial buildings as well, but we're happy to see that the government is at least positioning residential buildings and um, future government buildings as you know the first place that they're going to refuse new gas connections. Um, as far as we're concerned, anyone looking up to gas now is tying themselves to um, a fuel that is going to be a stranded asset down the track. Um, pretty quickly. So we are pretty keen to see the government extend that commitment out to all new gas connections and as quickly as possible. And from there, we really um, need the government to make a plan to retire the gas distribution network. That's the main system that delivers gas to our homes. Um, It's a little known fact that the pipes that deliver gas to our homes are made out of various materials. And in some cases, they're made out of cast iron, so rusting, falling apart. Um, at the moment, I don't know if um, if any of your listeners have observed that streets are being dug up around Melbourne and they're replacing the old gas mains. And in some cases, where they go to replace the gas mains, the pipe has disintegrated entirely. <laughs> so, That's terrifying. Yeah, yeah so there's, um, there's, um, I hear reports from across Melbourne of um, places where you can stand on the street and smell gas. 
so it's just leaking that badly. Uh, it's it's really just it, it's a ridiculous system. So um, we were happy to see the state government make that commitment. We really need them to go further. Of course, yes, um, there's so much more that can be done. Um, I wondered, you know, what are some frequently asked questions or concerns that people have regarding the the move away from gas? Um, I I think, you know, it's something that obviously a lot of people want to do and really care about, but sometimes they might not know um, how to go about the process or where to begin. So um, have you been having those conversations with people? Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, one of the baseline issues for people is... Um, gas and cooking. So a lot of people will be, you know, of the mind that uh, you can pry their gas stove out of their cold, dead fingers. And um, and look, you know, we appreciate that once upon a time, um, this, the option was either an old electric element that's horribly inefficient and, and not very sensitive. And so we can understand why gas is preferable to that. <clears throat> but... Um, but nowadays we have all of these new innovations. So there's um, ceramic cooktops and induction cooktops that people can use as an alternative to gas, and they're far more sensitive. Certainly induction cooktops are way more efficient and um, sensitive and responsive boil water in a fraction of the time that it takes to boil water on a gas stove. So that is one of the areas. And, you know, sort of, um, again, people are very wedded to their barbecues. It's Australia, we have a barbecue culture um, and they're, they're particularly bonded to <laughs> gas barbecues. But I was just recently, um, about a month ago, I was up in Shepparton and they were doing an induction cooktop barbecue just out there in the street. Um, just had a little portable induction hot plate plugged into a battery and, and you know, we're cooking sausages way more quickly <laughs> than you would be cooking sausages on gas. So that is one of the things that people are concerned about. But another concern, and, and this is, I think, um, far more salient, is uh, the cost of getting off gas for a lot of people is prohibitive. Um, whether it's switching out their old inefficient gas appliances for new, more efficient electric appliances, a lot of people just can't afford that upfront cost to um, to swap over. And for a long time, um, gas companies were charging people whatever they wanted, basically, for disconnection um, and abolishment fees. So if you wanted to um, cap the meter, like abolish the meter um, that supplies gas to your house, people were paying as much as $1,000 to have that done. Now, that's an incredible barrier, and particularly when you um, consider that the upfront cost of... There is no upfront cost to connect to gas. So it's free to connect and really expensive to disconnect. And we argue that it should be the other way around. Um, fortunately, the um, state and federal government um, government agencies, the Australian Energy Regulator, working with the Essential Services Commission in Victoria, have put a cap on abolishment fees. So it's now capped at $220 to abolish gas. So it's more affordable, but still out of the reach for some people, and particularly at a time of cost of living crisis. 
Yeah, definitely. I was go- I was just going to say, yeah, yeah is the is the government um, supporting people in any way? Like, if if they're saying, you know, no new homes and government buildings um, will have gas connections from next year, but there are people with existing gas connections that want to make the change. Is there support? So, um, you know, two two hundred dollars is is a lot of money, um, and, but I guess when you compare it to a thousand dollars. Mm. It's perhaps a, a, a little more feasible, but still, um, it seems quite wild that you know it's free to connect, but but you have to pay in order to make um, a, a, an environmentally friendly choice. Um, yeah, I, I was going to ask about uh, renters. Um, mm. You know, we have a lot of renters in this country and in this state. Mm. So, if there are any people renting who who want to switch from gas, do you have any advice for them? Absolutely. So one of the things that we've seen is that, I mean, you know, a third of um, Victoria's households are rentals. So it is a significant percentage of the population. And rental properties are quite often below even the mandated minimum standards required for, you know, um, comfortable living. So we, you know, we, we hear a lot from renters that they want to get off gas, but the landowner is not inclined to do that, and why would they? I mean, really, it's a cap. We, we live under capitalism. It's an investment property. They want to see a return on their investment. And they're not going to um, put any more money into that property than they absolutely need to. Um, more often than not, so a lot of renters are left behind by schemes like you know the Victorian government was offering some subsidies for people to upgrade their appliances from older inefficient gas appliances to new more efficient electric appliances, but those schemes are not really available to renters or, you know, the solar citizen scheme. Um, So we are at the moment writing a discussion paper with a series of policy measures um, to really incentivise rental fuel switching and to, um, in fact, compel uh, rental providers to switch over to renewable electricity and to do that in all of their rental properties. And look, you know, just to speak to the level of disengagement, I mean, at the moment, the Get Off Gas pledge has been operating for, you know, a couple of weeks. We were at a little over 300 pledges. Um, Bearing in mind that a third of the households are rentals, we are not seeing a third of the pledges being um, those, you know, as coming from renters. Um, we're asking people when they take a pledge to identify whether they own their own home if they're living in private rental, public or social housing. And we're seeing considerably, like it's an overwhelming majority of people who own their own home who are taking the pledge. Almost no renters are taking the pledge. And it really just speaks to the fact that renters feel like these sorts of opportunities are just not available to them. So we're really keen to hear from renters. If you um, are renting in a house with gas and you wish you weren't, please take the pledge and leave us a little comment in the comments field to explain, you know, what your circumstances are and why you want to get off gas because it's really important that we represent all renters' perspectives or as many renters' perspectives as we can um, gather to the state government to let them know that renters are really keen to have some incentives to help them get off gas as well. Yeah, for sure, and especially at a time when housing you know, insecurity is at a is at a high. I imagine you know it, it would be it's a it would be a frustrating and sometimes you know intimidating process to have to engage with um, with the property owners or, or landlords in that way. Um, oh yeah. Uh, you know, so um, I think 
that's such a great point, Freya, that we do need to hear from renters so that the government can know how to support people in that way in order to make the switch and, and like you said, compel property um, owners or rental properties to, to make the switch as well. Um, so just one more time, that that uh, website to find the pledge is getoffgas.org.au. Um, and in right. terms of yeah, finding out more information about about um, the No More Gas Collective or, or where people can go to find, you know, or ask questions or things like that, would that be the same website or would you recommend um, another place to go? Well, um, we do have some frequently asked questions. We have a frequently asked question page on the Get Off Gas website or you can just go to the Friends of the Earth Melbourne website um so it's melbournefo.org.au forward slash gas and uh, and that gives a good rundown of the of what we're up to including tomorrow morning we're staging a rally out the front of parliament house to oppose this new project that is being proposed for gippsland to use brown coal to produce hydrogen for export to japan and to offset the 730 cars a year worth of emissions that that project is likely to produce. Um, they intend to build a um, the world's largest carbon capture and storage project um, in the Gippsland offshore basin. So we are pretty robustly against that and we're having a rally to say so. Out the front of Parliament House tomorrow, we have a petition also that is, uh, it's a bitly link, so bit.ly forward slash no to HESC, and that's numeral two, HESC. Um, we need 10,000 signatures on that to force some debate in Parliament to really shine a light on that project because it's ludicrous and it can't go ahead. Great, and we'll include the link um, to that as well in our show notes for um, for our listeners this morning. Thank you so much, Freya, for joining us on the show this morning to, to speak about gas. Um, all the best with the, the rally tomorrow, and we encourage our listeners to get down. Um, I'm sure we'll chat to you again at some point in the future, but for now, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Have a great day. That was Freya Leonard from uh, the No More Gas Collective at Friends of the Earth speaking to us about their latest campaign to get off gas. Uh, We've come to the end of our show now. Perhaps we can just do a quick recap of what um, happened this morning. We started off by speaking with Chloe uh, at the University of Melbourne about strike action happening all week there starting yesterday. We then spoke with Professor Sandy O'Sullivan about their project uh, mapping the influence of Indigenous LGBTIQA plus creative artists and upcoming talk that we will link to in our show notes later today. And finally, we spoke with uh, Freya Leonard from Friends of the Earth about moving away from gas. Um, and we also had a chat about, um, you know, women's pain and, and reproductive rights, as well as um, the solidarity action that's happening outside the Chilean consulate on St Kilda Road today at midday. Thank you so much for joining us here on Tuesday Breakfast. Stay tuned for Accent of Women coming up next. We'll speak. Uh, we'll chat to you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.